Are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Justin Weaver who is an attorney at the law offices of Robert H. Montgomery, or likely better known as your vet attorney, who naturally is an attorney serving veterinary medicine. Justin, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Isaiah. We connected and chatted two different times, and you're a new member of Vet Partners, and I think that is fantastic. And I've talked a lot about Vet Partners throughout the podcast, but you shared a term called making the donuts. And that's a great place to start because it caught me off guard when you first said it. I'm like, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. I don't know if I've ever been asked that question before. Certainly not a legal term of art, making the donuts, but it's a term that we use internally in our office to kind of discuss and describe the underlying tasks that go into a veterinary practice transaction. And so obviously when most people think of an attorney, and especially when people think of an attorney in connection with the sale or acquisition of a business, they're generally going to think of the sale agreements and the employment agreements and the leases and the real estate agreements and the drafting and negotiating of all of those binding agreements that the parties are going to enter into in connection with the deal. And those agreements are certainly a large part of what we do. They're very important. And obviously, they will govern the day should there ever be any type of dispute regarding the transaction. But the making the donuts kind of comes into everything else that goes into closing a deal. And so for us, and because we, and I'll just say we exclusively represent veterinarians or almost exclusively represent veterinarians and dentists in connection with transactional matters. And in that experience, we have been able to gain an understanding and an expertise in how to guide these deals from start to finish. And so that involves things like educating and guiding our clients through the process. For most of our veterinary clients, the deal that we are assisting them with is either their first time that they've ever been involved with a business transaction or For some, they may have been involved whenever they bought their practice and are now selling. And so it may be their second one, but they don't necessarily understand the process. And so the making the donuts to us is talking about the additional expertise that we're able to bring to the clients and make sure they can get the deal done as efficiently and effectively as possible. Yeah. And you touched on, obviously, you see so many different transactions and the team does a lot each year where it's just second nature to go through the process and understand it. But for the vast majority of someone, 
having you help them with what you offer from a service perspective, they've only done it, yeah, once or twice. So from a high level, can you explain what the flow of a deal is or how it kind of goes through from the beginning to the end? And again, no one wants to know all the nitty gritty details, which is why they hire you, but help like other certain stages where certain things happen. And what does that all look like? Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, we always caution our clients. There truly is no need for a veterinarian who is buying or selling a practice to understand every single thing that's going to happen in a deal. And in fact, I think it would be counterproductive for a veterinarian to try to understand all those ins and outs. Obviously, that's why they hire an attorney. That's why they hire a CPA. And they should have professionals that are able to guide them through the process. With that said, I think it is helpful to understand from a high level, the certain stages that are going to go into a practice transition. And so the first stage that we generally see is what we refer to as the offer or the letter of intent. And so this is the stage which, frankly, a lot of times clients will complete this stage on their own without our assistance, which is not always the best thing. But it is the stage where the clients are really making sure, the parties are really making sure that they have a basic understanding on the terms of the deal. And so they're making sure that they have an agreement on the purchase price. They're making sure that they have an agreement on the timeline for closing the deal and making sure that all of those material terms are mutually agreed upon before they move on to the the binding agreements. The most important takeaway from this stage is that generally this letter of intent or this offer should be a non-binding document. And so it should be a document that evidences the intent of the parties, but it shouldn't be something that is legally enforceable should either side change their mind. There are a few caveats to that. Generally, a letter of intent does include some exclusivity language, which from a seller standpoint requires the seller to take the practice off the market for a period of time so that the parties can negotiate the agreements. But otherwise, we generally look for that agreement to be non-binding. And it's important for the parties to make sure, even if they don't have an attorney involved at that stage, that they do make sure that what they're signing is non-binding so they don't find themselves getting into trouble down the road. The second stage is the actual binding agreements. And so that's whenever you're negotiating and you certainly must have an attorney involved at this point you're negotiating, drafting, going back and forth on the actual purchase agreements that are going to be signed. And this, again, going back to my initial point, it's kind of what most people think about when they think about this process. And it is obviously a very important stage to make sure that everything that needs to be in the agreements is in there. If something does not make it into the binding agreement, there is no obligation of either side to be bound by that. So it's very important to make sure those agreements are properly negotiated and agreed upon. After the agreements are signed, you generally move forward to what's known as a due diligence period. This period of time gives the buyer generally the ability to go in and look at the practice, to dig into the financials of the practice. In some cases, if the seller is agreeable, it will allow the buyer to speak to certain staff members and attempt to line up associate agreements with those staff members. It also allows them, if they're purchasing real estate, to do an inspection of the building to look into the zoning, basically to do all of the research they need to do to make sure that the practice and if they're purchasing the real estate, the real estate is what they understood it to be. And so that due diligence period generally gives the buyer the opportunity if they find something that is not equate to their original understanding, they can either back out or renegotiate the deal at that point. And then after that, you move on to 
closing and post-closing where the deal actually comes to fruition. You consummate the deal, the buyer takes over the practice, and then there are certainly post-closing obligations in the form of employment agreements and other obligations that the seller may have to live up to thereafter. Yeah, so letter of intent, binding agreement, due diligence, closing, post-close. Exactly. Perfect. So kind of that four different steps, again, a ton of stuff that goes into each of that. Certainly about as, as high level as you can get. Which is perfect for me too, because again, I'm glad that you're out there doing this because this is not something that'd be like, oh, that's really exciting for me to learn too. It's important to understand it, but yeah, the nuance of it, that's partially why you do what you do because you find enjoyment there where other people don't. So yeah, perfect from a high level overview of the deal flow. When you see different parties go through, where do you see kind of the deal stoppers that happen in a transition from a seller's perspective? I would assume that due diligence period where they can either renegotiate and now they're asking for maybe the moon and stars where that's not appropriate, or they just completely back out altogether. Is that correct? Or is it in other stages as well? Yeah, the due diligence stage is generally, I think, where most of those things are uncovered. A lot of the things that we see actually end up killing a deal are things that could have been avoided had the seller planned for a sale. And so a lot of sellers, first of all, they don't understand what they need to do in order to make sure that a eventual sale goes through. Even if they do understand, it may not appreciate the implications. And so a few examples, if a seller is leasing the real estate in which their practice is located, In order to sell their practice, which is obviously generally very much tied to the actual physical location where they're practicing, they have to be able to get the third-party landlord on board with this transaction. And so that third-party landlord who is totally disinterested, has no interest at all in the deal, needs to enter into either a new lease with the buyer or potentially agree to assign the seller's existing lease. And so that's one of the areas where we're dealing with a third party. We can run into some issues if the third party landlord is not cooperative. There are ways, and this is something that you truly have to plan far in advance to make sure that you avoid this issue. But when negotiating the initial lease, you can include provisions that allow you to automatically assign the lease to a buyer in connection with the sale. So you don't even have to go to the landlord and get that approval. Another issue that comes up in leases is when a buyer comes in and looks to purchase a clinic, they are generally going to require that they have the right to use the space for some extended period of time following that acquisition. And so they may look for a lease that allows them to be in the space for at least 10 years or maybe up to 15 years. And a lot of sellers don't really think about that whenever they are dealing with their lease. Some sellers wrongfully believe that they should allow their lease to expire so that they're not subject to a lease moving forward after the time when they plan to sell. That is totally incorrect and oftentimes can cause problems for a seller because when the buyer comes in and wants to take over that lease, even if the lease may allow an automatic assignment to that buyer, it doesn't do the buyer much good if there isn't sufficient time remaining on that lease. And so That can obviously cause problems. You have to go back to the landlord and renegotiate the lease. And you're effectively giving the landlord a seat at the negotiation table, which is never a good thing to give a third party a seat at that table. There are other things that we find that upend sellers as well. One of the big things that we try to reinforce in our clients who are sellers 
is not to stand on principle. I'm giving away all of our internal office secrets here, but we use the uh, term, the dreaded P word for the term principle. And so a lot of times we'll talk to our sellers and we'll go over a provision in an agreement. They say, I'll never agree to that. And it could be something silly. It could be a representation that says the seller has never operated any other business at this location and the seller truly hasn't. And the seller may not want to give it because somebody else told them that they shouldn't give certain representations in the agreement. Or the seller may not want to agree to a non-compete that they believe is overly broad, despite the fact that the seller is planning to relocate across the country and retire immediately after the sale. And so going back to our theme of making the donuts, we have to talk to our clients about only focusing on the things that are actually going to matter for them in the agreements and not upending a deal on something that truly is never going to have any impact on them. So we have a lot of discussions about making sure that there is a a true basis and a true reason for why we're asking for things when we're representing our clients and making sure that we're not just asking for things because we want to win the negotiation or make sure that we come up with an agreement that's favorable for our client, but frankly, just doesn't matter for our client. So we spend a lot of time telling our clients to be reasonable and certainly making sure that we cover all of the potential risks and potential you know, kind of gotchas in an agreement, but at the same time, making sure that they're focusing on what really matters. Yeah. And I would think that the whole, again, dreaded P word, so principles, would be something that maybe other attorneys that aren't as familiar with transitions and going through this process that maybe are just, hey, this is who the family's worked with for a long time. They might say, you know what, that's really important. There's no way we're going to sacrifice that when, again, like you said, they might be moving from Pennsylvania to Indiana. It doesn't even matter, right? So why does it matter if the restricted covenant that you can't open an office in a 50 mile radius, which is ludicrous, way too big. But if you're not even going to be there, why does it matter? And like you talked about winning, but one of the things just on that, is that why attorneys get named deal killers? And some people are like, oh, I don't really want to you know, engage with someone yet because that's going to just mess up our deal. Yeah, that is a good point. There are certainly attorneys who have earned that name as a deal killer. Not disparage my profession, but it certainly happens. And we find that that often happens when you have an attorney who is advising the client but doesn't necessarily have an understanding of all of those things that I talked about that actually matter. And so the example that you gave with the non-compete, where we may be asking for a 20-mile non-compete if I represent the buyer, and the seller's attorney may feel very strongly that that's unreasonable. And I may have a conversation with the attorney where I say, well, these are all the reasons why we think it's appropriate. We want to protect our client's acquisition of goodwill in this practice. Your client has said they plan to retire, so we just want to make sure the agreement reflects the intention of the parties. And that attorney may come back to me and say, I agree with all of that, but it's unreasonable, so we're not going to agree to a 20-mile non-compete. And there's no reason to do something like that, again, other than to kind of win that specific battle, for lack of a better term, in negotiating the document. And so we do really try to avoid that. And I have to, again, admit that unfortunately, there are some attorneys out there that earn that deal killer label. That's something that we try very hard to avoid and to make sure, you know, look, our clients engage us generally with the intent of buying or selling a practice or with the intent of buying into an existing veterinary clinic. 
And so their goal when they come to us is to accomplish that transaction. They're not hiring us to try to drive a wedge into the negotiations and kill the deal. There are certainly times where there are terms in an agreement or certain things proposed by the other side where we need to make sure our clients understand that they could really be hurt by those provisions. If our client is a young veterinarian who is selling their practice to a corporate group, and that corporate group is requiring that our seller sign a non-compete that is going to stem 20 miles from every single one of that corporate buyer's locations, and the corporate buyer has 100 locations throughout the area of maybe several states surrounding where our client lives, we're going to make sure our client understands all the replications of that, that they understand the implications of that, and that they could be severely restricted moving forward. So there are things where you need to kind of stand up and wave your arms and say, hey, this is not okay. We need to resolve this. And generally, you are able to resolve those issues. If you're not, Sure, there are circumstances where it doesn't make sense to go forward with the deal. And in those circumstances, we want to make sure our clients do not go forward. But it's pretty rare that you get to that point. Generally, we're able to advise our clients and educate the other side of a deal to make sure that we get to something that is customary in a deal of that type and is reasonable for both sides. Yeah. And it makes complete sense. You don't want someone to get so emotionally attached or involved in a deal that they're going to make sure, you know, come hell or high water, they're going to see it through when it's going to be damaging to them long-term. So I think that's really important to also know that sometimes there are reasons to make a deal not work out, but rare. The other example of like a corporate consolidator and all the different locations I've heard of that, if they've ever stepped foot in a practice or like there's all these different or clinic, like if you worked at a couple, then there can be some tricky language that certainly needs to be reviewed by someone that understands and grasps the impact of that. So that's a great point. But kind of going back, I know you talked about principles, was there anything else from a deal stopping perspective that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, well, I guess I talked briefly about leases as well and kind of the impact of having a third party involved in the negotiations. That concept of a third party being involved and needing to get the approval of a third party comes up in other circumstances as well. It may come up in connection with an associate at the office. And so it is not uncommon for us to have a client that is selling a practice. They may have one or two or more associates, veterinarians at that office, and they may either have no employment agreement with those folks or they may have very short-form employment agreements that don't have any type of non-compete or non-solicitation provisions in there. And so basically, those associates are free agents. They can go out and do whatever they like. They can leave the practice, and they can go compete and take clients, take employees, and they have no restriction on doing so. And so a sophisticated buyer, whether it's a buyer that we represent, it's a corporate consolidator, it's somebody who just understands the business and has good representation is always going to look and determine what restrictions an associate is subject to. And they're going to weigh the risk. If that associate does not have any type of restriction, they're going to weigh the risk of that associate being able to go out and compete with them following the closing. And we have seen deals fall apart for sellers simply because the buyer could not get comfortable with the fact that the associate, who may very well be the biggest producer in that office, has no restriction. And so it's important for practice owners 
whether they've just acquired a practice or they're getting close to the stage of being ready to sell, to make sure that they lock that situation up, that they enter into agreements with those folks so that they're not hurt down the road whenever they go to sell. They may be looking at a huge swing in the amount of money that they can eventually get out of their practice if they do not have those types of restrictions for their associates. A specific example is that if a corporate consolidator comes in and is willing to purchase the clinic, that may be an offer that, and likely would be an offer, that the seller is not able to get from another professional should the seller sell directly to another veterinarian. The associates in that office are going to recognize that the seller is looking to sell to this corporate group. The corporate group is going to want to talk to those associates and get them to enter into agreements. And the associates may recognize that they have the opportunity to kind of hold up this deal because those associates in many cases would like and in some cases have been promised the opportunity to buy the practice. And so they're not just going to go along and sign contracts with the corporate consolidators and it can really upend the deal. So that's one of the biggest issues that we see come up on a fairly regular basis is that these practices just don't have any types of restrictions with these associates. Interesting. Just took me back to the beginning of the year at the Vet Partners annual meeting, which I know you had joined like right around that time. So you weren't there, but there was a breakout discussion on the, actually it was on the main stage with a number of different people with varying degrees of thoughts on that exact topic as far as restricted covenants and employment, like everyone should have an employment agreement, but how much strings did you attach to key staff or training? And if you're going to invest in someone and there was certainly a side of the stage that was more towards the, if you have a great work environment and you make it right for them and you show them that they can't go anywhere else and have the same experience, that's how you should do it. You shouldn't force them to sign something that could change and then force them to stay and not go pursue whatever it is versus the other side saying, you need to protect the asset that you have, protect the business, protect all these other pieces. Yeah, it was a little heated from a discussion. I'll just say it from that way. And even the audience giving opinions based on both sides of people talking about it. And I think that is a tricky spot, but at the end of the day, it is your business. If you're the owner and you need to make sure that you protect yourself and you can still make it a great place to work, even with all those agreements in place, that's more of where my mindset goes is you want to make sure that you know, at the end of the day, you're there to serve and take care of the patients and clients that come in. And if you can't do that effectively, then you have an issue right there. The other thing that popped up when you were talking is the idea of corporate consolidators and, and people will talk about that as having higher multiples to be able to pay. And, you know, here's a big check. Yay. You can monetize that practice and you can retire. And it's a wonderful experience for people that are able to go through it. But do you see more of the deals that you've worked on with your sellers being, they get a big check and they walk away, or maybe they have some sort of time where they have to work for that consolidator? Or do you see associates buying in and it being a very structured deal where it's over a course of many years where they're slowly buying out? What do you see more of just out of curiosity? Yeah, there's certainly a mix. So we see both. We see a lot of sellers who are approached by corporate consolidators. And even for some of those, and I know this is another topic that can result in some conflict between veterinarians as to whether the existence of corporate groups in the industry is good or bad. I don't take either position other than to say that it's certainly here. And I think it's been a growing trend for some time uh, that there are a lot of corporate groups out there that are buying up practices. The upside, of course, for a seller of going with a corporate buyer, and this is what they are going to always present to those sellers whenever they approach them, is that there's a financial upside. And so they are going to tell them that they're going to have the opportunity to, first of all, 
get a higher multiple on the money that they're getting at closing. And then oftentimes they're going to tie in an ownership component for a period of time where the seller is going to remain a partial owner of either their specific practice and own stock in the top corporate group, the parent corporate group that owns all of the practices. And so there are some vets that will say, I'll never sell to a corporate group and I would prefer to sell to an associate, even though I may make less money at the closing. And there are others that will certainly entertain and will be enticed by the fact that they can have a higher earning potential, or at least will be uh, told that they're going to have a higher earning potential by going with a corporate group. I think the important thing to recognize in connection with this discussion is that it is never as clear cut as what I just said. I can go with a corporate group and I'll automatically make more money, or I can sell to an associate and I'll make less money, but I'll give it to somebody who I know will will take care of the practice. There are a litany of other factors that are going to come into play in considering one versus the other. Absolutely. And yeah, it's probably a discussion that'd be too long for this specific podcast recording, but I think it would be one that likely will find a way to make an episode at some point, just talking about how can you structure different deals as far as whether you do get one larger check with a little bit of a holdback from a corporate consolidator where they can write a bigger check today. And if you maybe haven't planned your exit strategy, that likely makes a ton of sense for an owner. But if you think about it, with a longer term horizon, how can you structure that where it could be something that is beneficial where net you could still keep the most amount of money by selling it in maybe stages or in chunks and what could that look like over time? So again, not where we're going to go with this because I want to stay focused on really the structure of going through the process, but what do you see as other big differences from a private buyer and a corporate buyer? Do they look at things differently? The deals flow quicker with a corporate buyer. What do you see? Yeah, they're definitely approached entirely differently by the buyers. And so generally, if you're selling to an associate or you're selling to another practicing veterinarian, this is not always the case, but that person is generally looking to acquire the practice and come in and take over the bulk of the treatment and the veterinary services that are being provided. And so to the buyer, they're generally going to look for some type of transition period where the seller is involved. But after that transition period, they may be totally okay with the seller moving on. And in fact, in many circumstances, they want the seller to move on after that initial transition period so that they can take over the clinic and operate it as they deem fit and keep as much of the profit as they're able to generate. From a corporate buyer's perspective, they have an entirely different outlook on what they want to do with the seller. Generally, they're coming in and buying the clinic and taking it over with the intent that the seller, or if they're able to contract with associates, that those folks are going to continue to operate and provide all of the veterinary services in connection with the practice. And again, this is all talking in generalities, but they don't have a stable of veterinarians that once they buy a practice, they're going to come in and replace all the existing vets and bring in their own vets. A corporate consolidator is looking to take over the cash flow associated with the practice, but they're going to look and almost always they're going to require that the seller agree to stay on for a longer period of time. And generally, we're talking somewhere in the range of two to three years. In some cases, it's up to five years 
where the seller is going to stick around and be invested in the practice, whether that's through an ownership stake that they're going to be required to maintain for a few years following the closing. Sometimes it's accomplished through an earnout where a portion of the purchase price is tied to the practice's ability to generate revenues post-closing. But they're going to find a way to make sure they tie up that seller for a period of time to continue to operate the practice for them. I think that's the biggest conceptual difference when you're comparing a corporate buyer versus a professional buyer. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great overview. There's a lot of nuance to all of this. And I know that you could be like, well, you know, we go into this specific situation and this specific situation, but yeah, it's hard to know without seeing someone's practice and knowing what the right fit is and who the consolidator is, who's the private deal. Like there's a lot of different aspects to why it can look and feel different, but I've heard very similar things. I know we both work in veterinary medicine and, and dentistry, and it's very, very similar in that transition piece in both industries as far as the pressures from corporate consolidators and the growth there, and also the private practice model as well. So appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I'll, just, I'll just add to that quickly. As you mentioned, that every deal is kind of structured differently as opposed to a private deal where you're generally receiving 100% of the purchase price at closing, and you may have a post-closing employment agreement where you're working for a vet who's acquiring the practice. Corporate deals have a number of structures. And in fact, you're not really going to find one that is exactly like another. The main takeaway, though, is that these corporate deals are going to be much more complex than an ordinary practice transition between one practitioner to another. The corporate groups generally are a bit more sophisticated, for lack of a better term, in the counsel that they hire. The documents that they're preparing are going to be more complex. And so there's going to be a lot more detail to consider whenever you're selling to a corporate group. And frankly, the deal is going to be a bit more complicated. And so while there is definitely the ability to have a higher upside in those deals, I always like to make sure when sellers come to us that they understand that this is going to be a bit more complicated, a bit more difficult to get this deal done than it may be to do an ordinary transaction where you're simply selling all of your assets in exchange for a purchase price that's paid immediately at closing. Yeah. Thanks for adding that as well. And it makes sense that if you have a corporate entity that has a lot more from a funding perspective, they're going to likely have a little bit more legality tied up in some of those contracts where they've dealt with enough deals and saw something maybe go sideways a little bit. That was weird in one situation that they want to make sure they protect themselves moving forward. And when you've done enough and start growing, you kind of add those and they get certainly tacked on, I'm sure. Right, exactly. So we introduced and obviously talked a little bit about you at the beginning. Don't know a lot about you personally, Justin, and this is a podcast around success. And I wanted to chat a little bit around how you define success personally and professionally. It's something that I ask each and every guest that comes on the show. And I always love kind of hearing those responses. So what does success mean to you? So success, I think from a professional level, kind of boils down for me to the ability to bring value to my clients. And so what exactly that value is, is going to differ for each client. It goes back to being able to kind of lead them through whatever process they're going through to assist them in understanding the ins and outs, both from a legal standpoint and a business standpoint as well when they're dealing with their practices. But if I'm able to bring value to that client and the advice I'm giving them is allowing them to make the right decision for them, then I see that as a success. And whenever I'm able to successfully provide that value, 
all of the other typical measures of success kind of come along with that. So as far as gaining additional clients or growing our business, all of those things stem organically from being able to provide value to our clients. And so that's really my definition of success when I look at the professional work that we're providing. From a personal standpoint, I believe, Isaiah, you and I have talked about this. We're both in similar places with our family in that we both have young children. I have a uh, my first son who is 10 months old. And so my definition of success, I think, changed pretty quickly from a personal standpoint after I had my first child. But for me, being able to spend time with him and my family, to provide for them, and to do things that bring joy to all of our lives is really how I look at success from a personal level. Yeah, thanks for sharing it. Yeah, I think our sons are like, what, two weeks apart in age? Yeah, exactly. June, right? Yeah, yours was born in June too. Yeah, it was crazy (laughs) when we first connected. It was like, wow, they're really, really basically the same age. Final question, obviously yourvetattorney.com is the URL, but where would you suggest other people? I mean, do you have a LinkedIn? Do you have other social media that you would encourage people to follow? I'm sure you guys are putting out content. I know you are from that standpoint, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually yourvetlawyer.com. I don't know who your vet attorney is, but don't want to be sending people there. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so our firm website, and I am not the only attorney at our office, we have several attorneys who all do similar work in representing both the veterinarians and, as I mentioned before, dentists for the most part in this type of transactional work. And we all do collectively work as a team on these deals. Our website has a lot of good material that we put out. We feel a bit of a duty given the nature of our practices and the industries that we're in to try to put things out and contribute to these industries. And so we put out videos and webinars and articles on our website. Those are also put out through our firm, Facebook and LinkedIn as well, which are both at Your Vet Lawyer. And I am personally on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Anybody should feel welcome to send any questions they may have to me through those sites. I I will warn you that my Facebook is, if you are going to connect with me there, you're going to see a lot of pictures of my son. I think you'll find that they're pretty cute pictures. There you go. (laughs) I will link to everything that you mentioned as far as giving people the ability to find you as well. But thanks for showing people the different ways to do things. And I've seen the content that you and your team have put out. It's been super helpful and really worth the time spent to review it. So highly, highly recommend and encourage people to check it out. And thank you, Justin, for the time today to kind of walk through all this stuff. And I know it's not something that people typically get super excited to think about, but it is really, really important. And there's a lot of dollars and cents that add up by making the right decisions and working with people that understand your industry and how to make it hopefully the most painless process, but the right process for them. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Isaiah. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is a platform that is predominantly how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest review and rating. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links, 
links and information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and the ability to have your voice heard, please consider joining the private podcast Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll down to the about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can approve you, let you into the group, and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening, and I'll be talking again to you soon.